Open your Bibles this morning. First Peter. First Peter. We're going to continue in First Peter today. This is be our fifth installment in the Rightly Dividing series. Formerly called Time Pass, but now Ages to Come. Now keep in mind that the purpose of the messages that I'm doing now that are for the, you know, the reason is to help people who don't understand the Word of God rightly divided to have a foundation in their life of time past but now ages to come and to know what is written to them and what is not written to them. Like I said before, understanding what is not written to you in the Bible is just as important as knowing what is written to you. Because if you can know what's not written to you, you'll be way ahead of the game. And nobody will be able to stick you under the law, and nobody will be able to manipulate you by using the law in your life to bring you under condemnation, which happens frequently. So what we're doing is the basics of dispensational truth, the basics of rightly dividing the word of truth so that we can see exactly how God laid out his word in a King James Bible And that's why I want to spend a little bit of time reminding people of the importance of time past, but now and ages to come. This is how God divides his word. This is not something that was invented by me or anybody else. This is just the way he does it. Whenever you you look into the word of God and you see a division between the circumcision and the uncircumcision, you know, whenever you see that, that God is not dealing with the Gentiles. For some reason, many people today believe that when Jesus Christ came into the world, that that distinction between Jews and Gentiles ceased, and he began talking to everyone, but that's absolutely not true. When Jesus Christ came into the Gospels, when Jesus Christ came and John the Baptist broke the silence and introduced Jesus Christ, One of the first things Jesus Christ told his disciples was, go not into the way of the Gentiles. And into any city of the Samaritans, enter ye not. I mean, that's one of the first things he told them. So that distinction certainly had not stopped in the four Gospels. And then Jesus Christ came unto his own, and his own received him not. They put him on a cross. They killed him. They did away with him. He died, he was buried. Forty days later, he ascended up into heaven. He sent the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2, and that was the fulfillment of the, the Jewish feast of Pentecost, which they had been celebrating for over 1,500 years faithfully every year without fail. Gentiles were not invited to this feast. They had, no, they had nothing to do with this feast. The only Gentiles who were there were those who became proselytes to Judaism, who were circumcised and who had embraced the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They, some of them were there, but that's it. There were no common dog Gentiles, as they were referred to in the Gospels. Remember, Jesus Christ told the the Samaritan woman that about casting his bread to the dogs. And that's how Gentiles were looked upon. Now, when Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost, he addresses intentionally, he addresses the men of Judea, the leaders of Jerusalem, you men of Jerusalem, and the body of Christ today at large for the most part, may be confused about what happened on the day of Pentecost, but I can guarantee you Peter was not confused about what happened on that particular day. Peter never said that the Feast of Pentecost was the beginning of the church, the body of Christ. Peter never said that. Those words did not come out of his mouth, and yet everybody today wants to take the church, the body of Christ, and put it in Acts chapter 2 as though that's where the body of Christ began and nothing could be further from the truth. Peter knew what was going on. 
He told them exactly what was going on. Peter said, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, it shall come to pass in the last days that I will pour out of my spirit. Peter said, Peter did not say this is the beginning of the body of Christ. He says this is the end of something. This is the last days. That's what Peter said. There's a big difference between the beginning of something and the end of something. So how anybody today can read into that, that that's where the church started, when Peter said this is the last days, As far as is beyond my ability to understand. And so Peter, when he when Peter was talking, he had no idea that in one year from now, God would save Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. Peter had no clue anything like that was going to happen. There was a secret hidden God that nobody knew, that had never been revealed. And Peter didn't know that. So when Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and he spoke, there was a secret that would only be revealed after one Saul of Tarsus would be saved on the road to Damascus. So from Acts chapter 2 to Acts chapter 7, do you have that one-year extension of mercy that we read about in that parable in Luke chapter 13, verses 5 through 9 there? Is it okay? You dropped something? So... In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is preaching to the leaders of Israel and he tries to get them to repent of the murder of their king. And when he did that, they stoned Stephen. And that happened exactly one year after the Feast of Pentecost. Until this point from Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, where God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, all the way to Acts chapter 2, there is something that existed that does not exist today. Anybody know what it is? I'm referring to the middle wall of partition. That existed from way back here all the way to Acts chapter 7. And as long as that distinction exists between the uncircumcision and the circumcision, there can be no body of Christ. Because the body of Christ is made up of Jews and Gentiles today, and that never happened until after Saul of Tarsus was saved on the road to Damascus. And then in Romans chapter 11, Paul would say, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Have they... Israel stumbled, they stumbled at the cross. Have they stumbled that they should fall? No, that was not the purpose. That was not God's intention. Okay? But what happened? But through their fall, salvation is come to the Gentiles. It was here that God saved Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul and gave him the, the, the revelation of a secret that had been hidden God. And Paul wrote Romans to Philemon. And Paul said, I speak to you Gentiles. And for the first time in 2,000, 4,000 years, 4,000 years, God is now dealing with a group of people that until this point, until Saul of Tarsus was saved, were completely left out of God's program. Even in the Gospels. And so Paul wrote the body of doctrine that makes up what you need in your Christian life to grow spiritually. And Paul said of those doctrines that he preaches to us, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now made known to him. This dispensation will end with the catching away of the body of Christ. The world will go into Daniel's 70th week, the time of Jacob's trouble, 
the seven-year tribulation period. At the end of the tribulation period, Jesus Christ will return, destroy the armies of the Antichrist, set up his millennial kingdom for a thousand years. The seven-year tribulation and the millennial reign of Christ are the subject matter of Hebrews through Revelation, and that is God's timeline. That is not my timeline. I did not invent this. This is Genesis to Revelation exactly as it unfolds for you in the Word of God. I mean, that's just it. That's just how it is. Genesis to Malachi, Matthew to John, Acts to 2, verse, uh, chapter 7, Romans to Philemon, the catching away, Hebrews to Revelation. I didn't write it like that. God wrote it like that. So the failure of the body of Christ today to recognize these clear, obvious distinctions in the Word of God has led to more confusion in Christendom than anything ever seen in the world. Anything, ever. I was talking to somebody recently. She's, you know, she talked about, when did this movement start? Movement? I said, movement? John MacArthur's a movement. Calvinism is a movement. Arminianism is a movement. Rightly dividing the word of truth happened right here with Paul. Almost 2,000 years ago, or whatever it was, Marianne's going to get on my case about that. I have this girl, Marianne, she just she, <laughs> she talks all about precise little dates, which is important. But now, just for a quick brief overview of where we are today where we are now, okay? So far in this study, after the, the catching of the way of the body of Christ, we end up in the book of Hebrews. We saw that the prophets came back on the scene. We saw that we're in the last days again. Now we're reintroduced to the throne because that's where Israel is going, into a kingdom with their king. We're introduced to signs and wonders because that's the gospel of the kingdom is always associated and followed by signs and wonders, always. That's the gospel of the kingdom. Also, we're introduced to the second coming of Jesus Christ again. In James, he talks to those who were scattered. He introduces us to a synagogue again, and he introduces us to the kingdom. He introduces us to works, which Israel's relationship with God has always been a PBA, a performance-based acceptance program with God. They had to do certain things to be accepted. What do you do to be accepted with God? Yeah, nothing. You believe that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and was raised from the dead. You become a member of the body of Christ, and you are accepted in the beloved, not by your works, but by faith. God made it very easy for the Gentiles. And then also, they're introduced to the second coming. They're introduced to the judge. They're introduced to enduring, enduring to the end. And they're introduced to that three-and-a-half-year periods in which the tribulation period is uh, divided. And now we're in 1 Peter. 1 Peter also addresses those that were scattered abroad. He also talks about the last days, the last time. He talks about manifold temptations that, that they're going to go through. He talks about them being tried by fire. He talks about the appearing of Jesus Christ at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He talks about angels because angels are reintroduced to the scene again. There are no angels in the dispensation of grace. I know people think there are, but there aren't. You know, Paul talks about that in Colossians. Vainly puffed up by their fleshly mind, intruding into things of which they have not seen. He talks about angels. There's a lot of people out there that say a lot of things. And that, that's actually, that's where we stopped last week. Okay, we stopped at angels, chapter 1, verse 12. And we said that angels were back on the scene in the, in the tribulation period. The next thing on the list 
is the royal priesthood. Now, if you're in 1 Peter chapter 2, in chapter 2, look down verse 9, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The doctrine of the priesthood is something that is exclusively associated with Israel. Now, the body of Christ has tried to claim this doctrine for years. When I was first saved, I was introduced to the doctrine of the priesthood. You you know, we're we're the priests of God now. One of the first things I was introduced to as as a new Christian in the body of Christ, I thought I was a priest before God. That's why I got a guitar. That's why I bought a guitar, because I read in Deuteronomy that the priest ministered unto the Lord. Well, I'm going to minister to the Lord, man. I got a guitar. I learned how to play guitar. That's why I did it. Really? (laughs) It's true. That's the God's honest truth. Because that's what I was taught. Hey, you know what? It was in the Bible. It's got to be true. I heard many preachers as I was... You know, I used to travel to different, man, when I was first saved, I was like, I was on fire. I was a fireball. And I used to, like, when I was first saved, I went to a different church every single night. Me and a couple of my friends that we got saved about the same time. I took them with me to a different, I didn't even know what those churches were, but we were going. Every night of the week, we found churches on Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night. We went every, we went to all of them. Because I was on fire. I wanted to know. And I, I heard preachers going to the book of Hebrews. Who's the book of Hebrews written to? Oh, yeah, the Hebrews. The Hebrews. That's what Moses do, does in the morning. He brews his coffee. <laughs> Hebrews. And I heard preachers going to the book of Hebrews while they were preaching to the body of Christ. And they were, a lot of them would use this verse, Hebrews 4.16, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And the thinking behind it is this, Jesus Christ is our high priest, we also are priests, therefore we can come boldly to the throne of grace. And, of course, there's a lot of truth in that because there are similar similarities between the spiritual aspects of Israel's program and our program. It's the same God. Okay? Now, I know people listening right now will say, that's right. We can come boldly to the throne of grace because we are priests. I know many people think that. Let me share with you what you have by being in Christ what you have as your own personal possession. Here's a verse in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. According to the eternal purpose, which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Now, notice verse 12 begins with, in whom. That's where you, as a member of the body of Christ, are. You are in whom you are in him. You're in Christ. As a result of being in Christ, you have boldness. Not arrogance. Not haughtiness. Not superiority. Boldness. Boldness and access. Okay, we have access to God. Access is no longer denied. You have access not because you are a priest. You have access because of in whom? Because of being in Christ. And so we have boldness and access with confidence. So I don't approach my heavenly father with apprehension or with doubt 
or with fear. I approach my heavenly Father with boldness and confidence. Why can I be confident? Well, number one, my sins are forgiven. But here's an even more important reason. I have confidence and boldness by the faith of Him. By the faith of Him. This one, in whom? In Christ. By the faith of Him. Now, the King James Bible has maintained the integrity of these words, faith of him. Every perversion, okay, and there are a lot of English perversions. Now, there are over 400, maybe close to 500 different translations of the Bible in the English language. 99.9% of them have removed faith of him and put faith in him. And let me tell you why that's wrong. It's not your faith in him that gives you access. Your faith in Christ gave you your salvation. Your faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, believing that his blood was sufficient to forgive you all your sins, your faith in that got you your salvation. It's the faith of Christ After you've done that and you've believed, the faith of Christ takes you the rest of the journey. He finishes the journey for you. It's the faith of Him that God looks at that gives you access because it's not you accessing, it's Him accessing and you're in Him. And that's a big difference. He is taking you with him into the presence of God. It's the faith of him. You know, Paul said it this way in Ephesians 1, 6, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Wherein he, God, hath made us accepted in the beloved. Where he goes, I go with him. The faith of him. And I can't change my positional status of justification once I'm in Christ. You know, there are many people today who put a premium on you not committing any sin as proof that you are a Christian. Many people do that today. If you sin, they feel they have a right to call your salvation into question. Now, I agree with this. I don't believe, as a Christian, you should go out and try to live like the devil. (laughs) I don't believe that. Nobody should try to do that. You know, we have a responsibility. Okay, we're in Christ. We're new creatures in Christ. So, I mean, there's a change that takes place in the life of a person who has trusted Jesus Christ to save them. There better be a change. There better be something happened in your life. But what happens if a Christian sins? Let me rephrase that. What happens when a Christian sins? Because although you are saved, you will sin. I mean, should you? No. Will you? Yes, you will. You know why? Because you're a fallen child of Adam. That's why. You still have a nature that has a propensity to want to do what your flesh wants it to do. Everybody has that. But what happens when you do sin? Doesn't Colossians chapter 2 verse 11 say that you've been forgiven all trespasses in Christ? If you've been forgiven all trespasses in Christ, does that mean past, present, and future? It does mean that, right? Well, there are people who look at this truth and reason it like this. But Paul, aren't you giving people a license to sin if they know that they're going to be forgiven when they sin? 
There are people who reason like this. They think like this. A license to sin. Grace is not a license to sin. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. That happened in Acts chapter 9 when God saved Saul of Tarsus and the grace of God appeared for the first time and revealed to Paul. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, contrary to Israel's program, which was a performance-based acceptance system. So grace came along. In Titus 2.11, Paul says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men through Paul. And what did it do? Teaching us to deny. Not teaching you to, giving you a license to sin. That's not what grace gave you. It didn't give you a license to sin. It taught you to deny. That's what it taught you. That's what grace teaches us. But does that mean you won't sin? Does that mean somebody can't get caught up in sin that another person will look at and say, I can't believe he's doing that? Not one of us has the right to look at another man and judge whether or not they were saved when they say they trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. We don't know what kind of a struggle a person is going through in their life. Now, granted, there are some things that people do and end up continue doing, and, and, and then you go, you know what? I don't know if he got saved. I mean, I don't know what he understood. Maybe he heard the wrong gospel, and he thought he got saved. And there's a lot of that going on in Christendom today. Preachers preaching the gospel of the kingdom, you don't get saved by the gospel of the kingdom. There's only one gospel that saves you today. It's the gospel of the grace of God and faith in Jesus Christ. But the only way someone would reason, Paul, aren't you giving us a license to sin? The only way somebody would reason that is they don't understand the doctrine of the faith of Christ. You know, in our videos library on our website, by the way, I told you we'd have a new website. It's going to be up next week, I believe. A guy ran into a couple difficulties. But in that section in the videos library is a section, there's a... Square, there's a picture of a guy, lost, save, lost, save, lost, save, lost. You know, can I lose my salvation? In that block of videos, there's a several, I believe there's three, on the faith of Christ. What the faith of Christ meant and what it means to you as a Christian. And I am absolutely convinced that you cannot even understand the salvation you have in Jesus Christ unless you understand the doctrine of the faith of Christ. If you don't know what that doctrine is about in your Bible, you don't understand salvation yet. You may be saved, but you don't understand salvation yet. I would highly recommend you go back and you listen to those messages and learn about the faith of Christ why the Bible says those words. Okay? So I don't have boldness and access with confidence because I'm a priest. I have boldness and access with confidence because of in whom? Because I'm in Christ. Because I'm forgiven. Because I have the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to my account. Because I'm complete in Christ. And all of that is because of the faith of Christ. So if you never listen to those messages, people listening online, I know, I think everybody here has. Well, you heard me preach them. I recommend you, you definitely go back and listen to those. Okay, that's why I have boldness and access with confidence. Not because we are a kingdom of priests. Okay? The next item that Peter talks about is called the day of visitation. The day of visitation. Day of visitation is something that has to do with Israel's program. It's found in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Notice Peter says, having your... Now, notice who Peter's writing to, okay? Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles. Notice how Peter singles out the Gentiles. 
Why does he do that? He does that because he's talking to the Jews. Why isn't he talking to the Gentiles? Because Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. That's why. Okay? I mean, did not Peter, James, and John in Galatians chapter 2 agree with Paul that they would go to the circumcision and Paul would go to the heathen? Didn't they make that kind of an agreement? Well, then we shouldn't be surprised that Peter is doing what he agreed with Paul to do, right? Peter is writing to the circumcision. For some reason today, people have forgot that in Galatians chapter 2, this agreement took place. And yet, everybody, and, and because they forget that, or they don't know about it, or they haven't read that, whatever the reason is, they don't know that when Peter, James, and John are writing, they're writing to who they said they would write to in Galatians chapter 2. It should not be a surprise. It should not shock anybody. But it does shock everybody. Because they forgot that very important handshake that they had with Paul in Galatians chapter 2. But notice how this verse continues. That whereas they, Gentiles, speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, and good works are going to be very important in the tribulation period for people in a performance-based acceptance program, that they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now you notice those words, the day of visitation. Now I can tell you, and you probably already figured out, that the day of visitation is not the rapture of the church or the catching away of the body of Christ. That's the second coming of Jesus Christ at the end of the tribulation period. How do we know that? Can we know that? We can because the day of visitation is a prophetic term concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm just going to put the verses up here. If you want to turn to Isaiah, but I'm going to be going to several passages of Scripture. I'm going to Isaiah. I'm going to Jeremiah. So I'm going to put them up here so you can just follow along. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 3. And what will ye do? In the day of visitation and in the desolation which shall come from far. To whom will ye flee for help and where will ye leave your glory? Without me they shall bow down under the prisoners and they shall fall under the slain. From all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Notice in verse 5 the Assyrian. That's the Antichrist. Oh, Assyrian, the rod of mine anger, and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. I will send him against an hypocritical nation, and against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil, to take the prey, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Now here's a passage that has to do with the tribulation period, where the Antichrist has now been commissioned by God, to go and do to Israel what God has planned for them in the tribulation period. But notice in verse 3, the day of visitation. And what will ye do in the day of visitation and in the desolation which shall come from far? Which shall come from far. Now this is an interesting phrase. Because the question you have to ask yourself is, how far? How far? Well, Isaiah is not the only prophet who mentions this concept of coming from far. I want you to notice Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 5. For thus saith the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask ye now, and see whether a man doth travail with child. You familiar with this Travail with child terminology. Paul talked about this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 5 when he talked about the, the second coming of Christ and, uh, as a woman travailing with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail and all faces are turned into paleness. Verse 7, alas, for that day is great so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble but he shall be saved out of it. That's Romans chapter 11, verse 25 through 27. 
For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins, and all Israel shall be saved. Remember that? That's, Paul talks about this. Verse 8. For it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke. That's the Antichrist from off thy neck. He's going to break his yoke. And will burst thy bonds, and, and strangers shall no more serve themselves of him. Verse 9. But they shall serve the Lord their God, and David, their king, whom I will raise up unto them. People often wonder, how is anybody going to be reigning? How is Jesus going to be reigning in the tribulation? He's going to raise up David. He's going to raise up David in the tribulation period to sit on the throne, just like it talked about in the Old Testament. I have a message on that I preached in Chicago so, a couple years ago about this whole concept of David reigning in the tribulation period, I mean the, in the millennial reign. People say, how is Jesus, oh, Jesus is going to be here and we're going to be in heaven and we're going to be separated from the Lord, you mean? No, you're not going to be separated from the Lord. Verse 10. Therefore, fear thou not, O my servant Jacob, saith the Lord, neither be dismayed, O Israel, for lo, I will save thee from afar and thy seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return and shall be in rest and be quiet and none shall make him afraid. And again, we ask, how far? How far is this? Isaiah chapter 30, verse 25. And there shall be upon every high mountain and upon every high hill, rivers and streams of waters in the day of the great slaughter, when the towers fall, Moreover, the light of the moon shall be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun shall be sevenfold as the light of seven days in the day that the Lord bindeth up the breach of his people and healeth the stroke of their wound. Verse 27, Behold, the name of the Lord cometh from far, burning with his anger, and the burden thereof is heavy. His lips are full of indignation and his tongue as the devouring fire. You recognize that as the second coming of Jesus Christ. And again, we ask the question, how far? How far? So we're out of time. Next week, when you get back here, we'll talk about the next, next verse gives you the answer, but I don't have time to cover it now. All right, I'm joking. The answer is found in Isaiah 13, verse 3. I have commanded my, well, not verse 3, but in the verses that follow, okay? I have commanded my sanctified ones. I have also called my mighty ones for mine anger, even them that rejoice in my highness. The noise of a multitude in the mountains, like as a great people, a tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of nations gathered together, the Lord of hosts mustereth the host of the battle. Now you see this as the culmination at the end of the tribulation period, right? Verse 5. They come from a far country. How far? From the end of heaven. Even the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Howl ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. The day of visitation. This is the day of visitation. This is the day that Peter is talking about. And those who come to visit are not happy. They come with destruction. They come with the weapons of destruction. And they come from afar. How far? They come from the end of heaven. And they come to destroy the whole land. This phrase, the day of visitation, is found only two times in your King James Bible. The first time it's found, is found in Isaiah. The second time it's found, it's found in 1 Peter. Isaiah, when he talks about the day of visitation, he's pointing to the future to events that will happen. When Peter writes about the day of visitation, he's talking to the people upon which it will happen. That's how we know Peter's not talking to the body of Christ. 
Now, if you want to know exactly what the day of visitation is, let me read it to you right here. Revelation 19, 11, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the day of visitation. And that's why Peter is not writing to the body of Christ. Now the next doctrinal uh, point, the next dispensational point, I mean, uh, in First Peter, and I didn't even have a place to put it on, put it on, put it on that list, but it's found in First Peter two twenty one, and it's about following in his steps, following in the steps of Jesus Christ. It's found in First Peter two twenty one. It says, "For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us." leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps. Well, now here's a fact. Israel follow Christ. They don't follow Paul. Very interesting, very important point. I mean, since Peter is writing to Israel, this is absolutely true and right. But what I'm going to show you now to our denominational brethren, this is blasphemy. They cannot even believe that Paul said what I'm going to show you right now. You see, Paul did not tell the body of Christ to follow in the steps of Jesus Christ. He didn't tell, he didn't tell the body of Christ to do that. He did not tell the body of Christ to follow in the steps of Christ and follow his example. He did not do that because Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision to confirm the promises and Jesus Christ was under the law and he held those people under a very exact and stringent unbending law. That's why Paul didn't tell you to follow that. So what did Jesus Christ inspire Saul of Tarsus who became Paul to write to the body of Christ? What did he tell him to say? Well, 1 Corinthians 4.16, Wherefore I beseech you, be ye followers of me. That's right. That's what he said. That's like throwing a curveball at many in Christendom today. People who always hear their pastor on Sunday morning say, Open now your Bible to the book of Matthew. That's what they hear every week. Now here's your example to follow, they'll say, Okay. And then they stick Christians under the law. They expect people to be like Jesus Christ. Do you know that it's not possible for you to be like Jesus Christ? Did you know that? You want to know why? Because he was perfect. And you're not. You know what his perfection enabled him to do? His perfection is what qualified him to die on Calvary's cross in your place. For me to put that standard on you is an unreasonable expectation. Now, are you striving for that? Oh, yeah, you're, you're going to strive for it. But can you ever be that? Telling people to be like Jesus Christ today is like trying to put a truck in reverse and you're grinding the gears. It doesn't work. That's why so many Christians today are discouraged. That's why so many people who used to go to these big mega churches end up leaving. I can't live that. I can't be like that. I go there on Sunday morning. I'm a hypocrite because all week long I didn't live like what he's talking about. 
this standard that he's putting on me here. Not only that, he told me that if I give to his church, I'm going to be blessed. And I'm not blessed. I'm in poverty. And my bills are not being blessed like that. Man is promising me all my bills will be blessed. And they get disoriented and disillusioned and discouraged. And they end up walking away. Because that is not the message for the body of Christ. The message for the body of Christ is that you're forgiven in Christ. And God remembers your frame that you are but dust. God remembers that. And God knows who you are, what you are, what you're like. And that's why Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, who shall change our vile body and fashion it like unto his glorious body. Paul understood human nature. He understood what we're like, and he called this a vile body. And he did that for a reason, so that you would exalt yourself and get exalted in your mind and think that you were something you're not. Whenever somebody points their finger at someone and calls their salvation into question, there are three fingers pointing back at them. You see, people hate these verses. People hate this. I mean, people hate this verse. Even though it's in their Bible, they hate these verses. They also hate this verse, Philippians 3.17. Brethren, be followers together of me and mark them which walk so as you have us for an example. Who does Paul say is an example here, an example for the body of Christ? He says he is. Boy, you hear some of these big denominational preachers. You know, Paul was a woman hater and Paul was, oh man. No, that's not true. Paul, writing to the Thessalonians, said, you know how holy we behaved ourselves among you as a nurse cherishes her children? Paul's not like what those people are saying. I mean, I remember sitting with a family, and the daughter, the daughter said, well, Paul's mean, and, and, and he's this, and he's that. I'm like, whoa. Whoa, where did you learn that? Your pastor taught you that? Well, with all due respect, your pastor's an idiot. I mean, it's true. Why would somebody teach somebody that? Paul's the inspired apostle of the dispensation of grace. He was supernaturally empowered to live a holy life. Not only is Paul our example, he's our pattern. That's 1 Timothy 1.16, that he's a pattern. That's why he could say, be ye followers of me, even as I am of Christ. That's three different verses I just showed you that Paul says, follow me. What does this mean? That as he follows Christ, it means that as he follows Christ after the revelation of the mystery. That's what it means. Something that unless you rightly divide the word of truth, you could never understand. You couldn't understand this. Peter doesn't say follow Paul to Israel. He says Christ left us an example and follow in his steps. That's Israel. I mean, this is why people hate Paul. Some people, some people feel like, who is this Paul character? Cut his books out of the Bible. He disagrees with everybody else. That's what they say. What's the matter with Paul? He doesn't agree with Jesus Christ? Well, Paul is a new apostle with a new revelation and a new message and a new method preaching to a new group of people called the one new man, also called the body of Christ. Christ. 
this new revelation Paul has, he got directly from Jesus Christ. It's not a contradiction. It's a new message in a new program called the Dispensation of Grace. It's completely different. I mean, it's this, for this reason, Paul said to rightly divide the word of truth. Because he is not saying what the other inspired apostles said. He's saying something to a group of people who live right now, today, in the dispensation of grace. One day God will resume his prophetic dealings with Israel, and these doctrines will be for them again. But right now, Romans to Philemon is the body of doctrine for the body of Christ. So the next item on this list, Paul talked about, uh, Peter talked about the end, the end of all things. The end is at hand, he put it this way, in 1 Peter 4, 7. But the end of all things is at hand, be ye therefore sober, and watch unto prayer. When Peter uses the word end, he's using it the same way that Jesus Christ taught him what the end meant. You remember in Matthew chapter 24, they shall deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake, and, many, and then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another, and many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many, and because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, that's the end of the tribulation period, shall be saved. The same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. Then shall the end come. So, Jesus Christ uses endure unto the end, meaning the end of the tribulation period. I don't have time to elaborate on that, but the context of Matthew chapter 24 and 25 is the tribulation period and the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's what those chapters are about. That's exactly what Peter learned from Jesus Christ, and that's exactly what he's speaking about in this verse. But the end of all things, the end where Jesus Christ said, He that endureth to the end. That's the same end. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. The next item on this list is the glory that will be revealed. Another subject that has to do with the tribulation period. The glory that shall be revealed. Two things are associated with this truth. It's something that Peter mentioned in chapter 1, verse 11. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Those two things are always together. Like one follows day like, the, like, like night follows and they follow one another. Suffering first, the tribulation period, and then the glory that shall follow. Same thing here in 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, he may be glad also with exceeding joy. You know this verse puts this in its perfect context for you that when His glory shall be revealed. When is that? His glory will be revealed right here. When He returns at the second coming of Christ and He sets up His kingdom and He sits upon the throne of His glory. Matthew 25, 31 puts it this way. When the Son of Man shall come in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, by the way, that is who's coming with Jesus Christ, all the holy angels with Him, not the body of Christ, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory. Peter also reiterates this in chapter 5, verse 1. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. His glory will not be revealed at the rapture. The rapture is a catch, the, the secret appearing of Jesus Christ. Nobody sees that. 
All of a sudden, you're gone. That's it. So there's suffering, the tribulation period, and glory. Those two always follow each other like that. You can't get away from that. The next item on this list is that judgment must begin at the house of God. Judgment begins at the house of God. Boy, I'll tell you, I heard a preacher rap, r preach on that one time. You want to talk about putting the body of Christ under condemnation? Oh, man. This is, this is the verse right here. Boy, I'll tell you, you better straighten out. You're not tithing? Well, let me, let me talk to you about the time, of the, the time has come that judgment must begin right here. Today, okay? You want to talk about putting people in fear of giving? This is the verse to do it with. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Let's look at verse 18 first. And if the righteous scarcely be saved, man, you're sitting here, you have the imputed righteousness of Christ, but if he says if the righteous scarcely be saved, what are you doing that isn't right? This is a condemnation. This is a preacher's, you know, this is the glorious condemnation passage of Scripture to preach, to keep people under the law. Does that even remotely sound like anything Paul would say to you? You know who loves verses like this? Pentecostal preachers and certain preachers who say you can lose your salvation. They love these verses. They love to run here and point their fingers at a struggling Christian and say, if the righteous scarcely be saved, where do you think you're going? Right? I would love to follow anybody like that who has that attitude about other Christians and who points at them and points at their failures. I would love to follow that person around and see how long it takes to call the authenticity of their salvation into question. I would love to do that because I know how to find fault with people. There's a lot of things you do you don't even know are wrong. I would point them out to you. But you know what? That's not my job. My job is to encourage you and edify you and show you that, look, this is where you're headed. You're going to make mistakes along the way, but you're forgiven in Christ, and let's keep moving. See, that's my job. I mean, that's the job of the pastor. Not to beat you and browbeat you and condemn you and make you walk out of here like, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen now. I'm doomed based on this message today. Now there's something else in the verse that needs to be understood. Notice, okay, verse 17, for the time has come. Something has developed over a period of time, Peter's saying, and the time has come for it to occur. What is it? Judgment must begin at the house of God. What judgment is Peter talking about? Well, we read a while ago, John in the book of the Revelation said, I saw heaven open and a white horse and he that sat on the horse, righteous and true. That's the judgment Peter's talking about. That's the judgment that comes upon the house of God. Judgment could not be spoken of you for this good reason. Paul begins all his epistles with grace and peace. Now, Peter did begin this epistle with grace and peace, but you have to see something in verse 2. 1 Peter 1, 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace. Notice, be multiplied. Be multiplied. Do you know that your grace and your peace cannot be multiplied? It's already in its fullness. 
Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. It's a settled issue. My peace is not going to be multiplied. Israel's peace is going to be multiplied at the end of the tribulation period. That's what Peter said in verse 13. Okay. Uh, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's where their grace will be multiplied. You don't have that issue. You don't have that problem with your grace and your peace being multiplied. You have the whole ball of wax right now. And grace and peace are dispensational salutations written to the body of Christ. Remember, we read those verses a while. I won't go back there. Revelation 19, that he comes to judge and make war. Judge and make war. Judging is the opposite of grace. Making war is the opposite of peace. That's, that's Israel's dispensational salutation. Judgment and war. That's what you're getting. You got grace and peace already. In Christ, you're accepted in the beloved. The next item on this list is the chief shepherd. And I am done right now because we're finishing 1 Peter today. <clears throat> so, and when the chief shepherd shall appear, that's shepherd, that's verse 1 Peter 5, 4. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. The doctrine of the shepherd is the doctrine that's associated with Israel. Jesus Christ is not your shepherd, and you're not his sheep. Jesus Christ is your head, and you're his body. Okay? So that's another th reason why it, this cannot be written to the body of Christ. And then one more item. Suffered a while. Peter talks about suffering a while. And obviously, this puts us right smack dab in the tribulation period again. Notice verse 10. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. They're suffering a while. You remember how Peter began this epistle? In verse 6. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season. He begins with telling them you're going to suffer for a season. He ends and says, after you've suffered a while, showing you that this epistle is one full circle of truth. And it all surrounds suffering in the tribulation period and the glory that shall be revealed. That's what Peter's talking about. That's the doctrine of 1 Peter. Amen? I hope I didn't offend anybody by calling their pastor an idiot, but you know what? It, it, you know, it, it's sad that they won't rightly divide. They call you an idiot for rightly dividing and amongst all kinds of other names. They kick you out of their churches. They badmouth you from the pulpit. Because you're rightly dividing according to what God told you to do in studying your Bible. So, I feel sorry. But this is so simple to me. It's so simple to just rightly divide and remove all these confusion and confusing things. And, and, and you know, Christians who sit under this and who subject themselves to this kind of teaching, this kind of manipulation, this kind of threatening teaching, they need to remove themselves from that atmosphere and find themselves a church that understands the Word of God rightly divided and understands the grace message. They need to do that for their own spiritual health and well-being and the spiritual well-being of their families. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this time that we could spend in the Word of God. I thank you for the truth that is so clear and so plain 
that Peter is writing to people in the tribulation period after the church is out of here. I pray that those who heard the words of this message will will allow these words to be forged upon the tablets of their heart and take heed to the word of God and be more interested in doing what God says than what any man says. I pray these things today in that name that is above every name, the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.